Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast about women's football, a principality. Now, I think one of the dark truths about women's football is that on the administrative and coaching side of the game, it's a haven for princes seeking their fortune off the back of women. Now, by princes, there's really two types of princes in this regard. So you really have your sort of type one, your, your penniless princes who are seeking to make a name for themselves. So people like you know, sort of Mark Sampson and to a much lesser extent, John Herdman. In other words, they're just, it's the seeking fame and fortune at the tip of a sword. In other words, these are people with no reputation who then see women's football as a fantastic opportunity to make a name for themselves, to build a reputation in the sport. Now, Mark Sampson is is your classic example of that. John Herdman Lesler. Now, John Herdman is currently the coach of the men's national team for Canada. Now, originally, obviously, he started out, he's from the north of England, he's a Geordie. And he started coaching you know, women at sort of university level and eventually built enough of a reputation in the game that he became the women's national coach of Canada, the women's side, when they hosted the World Cup. Did a fantastic job, took them to the quarterfinals, lost narrowly to England. And really, he, at that stage, he was, he'd really, I think, taken the Canadian women's team as far as he could as far as they can do within the sort of infrastructure and the playing squad that he has. I mean, I think one of the examples you'd say is they lost the striker Sydney LaRue. She was born in Canada, had an American dad, did really well and was, you know, had played at the through up through age groups for Canada and was making a name for herself in the uh, NWSL. Problem was, she decided really that, you know, to, I suppose, progress her career, that the best option would be playing for the United States. She did, she played the World Cup, she has a World Cup winner's medal, but she really has fallen off the, you know, she was in, she got in her 23, she had moments where she could have become a starter, it hasn't happened, and as a result, you can't, I'm not going to blame her at all. That was her personal decision if she felt living in America, playing in America, having an American dad. If you want to play for the, the American national team, I get you. You have a World Cup winner's medal to, you know, show you that that wasn't the worst decision you've ever made. But obviously, I suppose, had she decided to play for Canada instead, who had developed her, you should probably have more international caps. And I'd imagine, you know, the Canadian women's team would be a much stronger outfit. But... That's really shows the limitations of what sort of Herman was working for with. Now, at the end of that World Cup, he really, you know, there was a potentiality that this is the problem that for to an extent the women's game has, is that there's only really a handful of, you know, meaningful jobs. You know, you have the the Canadian, which is kind of like a division kind of a division below the top end of the sport. Really, at the moment, you've got the German team, the French team, the English, the Americans, you know, and in the next few years, you'd imagine the Spanish and the Italians, they will go up to that level, but 
And then obviously in the, the domestic game, you, you obviously have you know the Portland Thorns. I'd say you know Orlando Pride. You have Leon Man City. But really, in other words, there's little, little basically give or take only about sort of a baker's dozen amount of jobs at any point that is you know high profile enough. And the England job didn't look like it was going to come up anytime soon. The American job wasn't going to come up anytime soon. So really, you know, and at which point, if he was to move back to, let's say, Europe, then the opportunity, you, know, you then have to uproot your family. So what's happened is, is that he then took on the job of the you know, Canadian men's team, which, relatively speaking, is probably at best a sideways move, if not a slight move backwards, in the sense that Canada have only qualified for the World Cup once in 86. Uh, only time they've really had any kind of degree of success is in 2000 when they won the Gold Cup fairly unexpectedly. Other than that, the Gold Cup has you know basically been the province of Mexico and America, and to a lesser extent in the last few years, Jamaica. But the difference being is is that the future of Canadian soccer at international level is the 2026 World Cup, which they're going to co-host along with Mexico and the United States. So the opportunity and the expectation, because it will be a 48-team tournament, that Canada should and almost certainly will be given a automatic birth in the tournament. So for Herdman, as long as he stays in the job for the next four, five, six years, he is guaranteed to walk out as the you know Canadian men's coach at a World Cup. With you know presumably the games will be played in you know the the Canadian national teams games in that World Cup I expect will take place in Canada. So you can you imagine it's gonna be a full house, you know, a lot of emotion and as a result that's then that means that he's gone from coaching you know women on a astroturf pitch freezing cold of an evening you know at university level to you know being one of the 48 best teams in the world at a world cup you know men's t- tournament so in that sense he has gone from basically being unknown to in a few years time potentially being on the the global stage my point being is i don't think john herdman sat out for the intention of coaching you know women at university level with the idea that eventually he'd turn this into be coaching at the upper echelons of the men's game he's ended up being a prince rather than starting out as one but it does show you where the women's game can potentially lead you in the right situation now for herdman I fully respect that if he didn't want to uproot his family back to you know, England or to Europe or to America for a job that you know, there's no guarantees, whereby at least in Canada you can stay in the same house. I'm not criticising him in any way, shape or form. Now with Samson, I've talked about him before. Again, this was someone who was you know, a very talented coach, but who was at the absolute lowest level of you know sort of Welsh football, it you know he w- didn't have a, a a name. He didn't really have an end into the men's game, and as a result, he went to Bristol Academy, and within a few you know a, a sort of very short period of time, he was then the coach head coach of the England women's team, took them to the semi finals in Canada, 
and the you know the world was his oyster. Now the point is is that was Mark Sampson is he a good coach? Yes, talented, absolutely. The record that he had at Bristol, England, even to an extent the record he had at the sort of lower end of Welsh sort of semi-pro football shows you that he had something. But in the end, look what happened. He had the problems with Enia Luko, Drew Spence, and also the you know the scandal of what happened at Bristol, where from my understanding and reading of it was that... You know, he was a young manager, and they, they they described it as almost being like a sort of stag and a hen party. So in other words, there was lots of going out, lots of mixing, and eventually, you know, we have the allegations that he was having inappropriate relations with his players, and who were a bit younger than him, and of which he had a duty of care, and a you know he was in a position of power, and factoring in the the problems that you know he had with you know making racist comments. This was someone who wasn't really in many ways, shape or form, an appropriate person for coaching, you know, women. And yet, and yet had these scandals not come to light, and let's face it, some of these scandals were already on, effectively on the books, but, you know, the English FA didn't look into them when he was, you know, chosen for the job. Had they not come out, and in other words, he had he had success, you know, he had success at the Euros, took them to a semis, and I suppose his counterfactually, we could say that he was learning as a coach, and potentially, you know, the England team that got to the semi-finals in a different world, he could have been the one that could have led us to glory. Now that's you know massively counterfactual. We'll never know. But the point was is that he did have skills. And then had he won and decided that he was going to move on, there was a decent chance that someone in the men's game, you know, you might be he might have been England under twenty ones manager. The Welsh might have decided that they wanted him to be you know a prospective national team coach at the men's game. In other words, there were there were there was a you know an implied suggestion that eventually he would then transfer back to the men's game. At which point he would then have a reputation and a skill set which would allow him to actually not just, we're not talking League 1, League 2, we would be talking Championship, Men's International, Premier League. That kind of, that was the arc that his career was heading towards. Now we really have the the sort of type 2 princes and these are more established men parachuted in the game for a role befitting their rank. And that that's really Phil Neville. And on the administrative side, you'd be more talking about sort of Jean-Michel Aulis, who is the president of the Lyon, both the men and the women's team. Now, with Neville, it's the classic example. Phil Neville did not apply for the England women's job. The reason that how it came about is the... I think the ultimate example of clubbiness and an administrative weakness within the uh, English game and within the FA. It was basically a journalist talking to an FA official at a after yeah, a cocktail party and the journalist said, oh, wouldn't it be a good idea if Phil Neville was the England women's team manager? And the FA official goes, 
Wow, what a what a genius idea that is. Now the point is, was Phil Neville qualified to coach the England women's national team? No. Not in any way, shape or form did he. He'd never coached the women's game. He hadn't really coached much at all and had never been a, a manager. So in other words, had he applied for that job with just a standard, let's say, a standard resume. So in other words, he'd played 500 times in the English lower league football anywhere between League One, League Two and the Championship. Uh, let's say that that person had been a first-team coach at one of the teams that he had played at. He'd only, let's say, had two or three clubs. And one of the clubs that he had played for, for 200-odd games, he had been a first-team manager, well, sorry, a first-team coach for about a year. Uh, he had done some low-level youth coaching for a Premier League team for, let's say, a year. And that he'd done a, had a little bit of experience coaching for six months, let's say, in... Greece, uh, maybe the second division in Greece for six months, and had applied for the England women's manager job. Wouldn't have had an interview, wouldn't have been touched, it, just no experience, you know, and, you know, no previous coaching experience or no coaching success, should I say. Wouldn't have got the job, wouldn't have got an interview, your CV would have just been thrown in the bin. And really... The only difference that you can say from our prospective candidate that I've just outlined and Phil Neville is that Phil Neville was more famous and was more well known. And as a result, that's really where he got sort of parachuted in. And again, it's the same thing that happened with Samson. In other words, you know, there was these tweets that he'd sent out, which were you know, sexist, but no one had bothered to check. And as a result, they've hired him. He was already a controversial appointment at this stage. And it made it look even worse when it turned out that actually he had said some sexist things, publicly said some sexist things, and eventually they just said, well, he said sorry, he's deleted them, he won't do it again. And it's the same thing. In other words, there were you know, red flags against Samson, but people were more than happy to ignore it because it suited, you know, their standpoint and their viewpoint. In other words, you know, people were willing to give Samson a chance because he was university educated, he was intelligent, white, middle class, as was Phil Neville, and to an extent, the same situation as was, you know, Gareth Southgate. In other words, there was always support in the FA for people like that, as opposed that a minority coach would never have had anywhere near the kind of push-ups and the boosts that, you know, Neville's and Southgate's and to an extent Samson gets. And that's the, and that's why we really need to sort of look into it on a more kind of deeper level. And we'll, we'll take the role of um, Baroness Sue Campbell. Now, Sue Campbell has done some fantastic, wonderful things for women's sport. She is an absolute hero. And, but she plays quite an important role in the uh, Phil Neville hiring. Now, she basically calls him up and they speak, and it's effectively what I'd imagine something close to a kind of, not quite a telephone interview, but it's definitely sounding out. And she basically talks to him, and Phil Neville is intelligent, bright, erudite, very passionate, you know, and he has a very clear idea of how he wants to do things, how he thinks, and a sort of philosophy that underpins that. And so I can see why 
they could see positives towards hiring him. Now, for me, I'd say that the, the, the hiring of Phil Neville from a purely media PR standpoint was somewhat inspired. It's What it did is, is that Phil Neville has acted as a gateway for a lot of people who would never have been interested in women's football becoming interested. Just purely, to an extent, out of an element of curiosity. In other words, you know, for years, Phil Neville's played for Manchester United. He was, obviously, his brother had a you know, high-profile media career. And as a result, people wanted to see how he would get on. And also, you then followed the... the yeah, the controversies over the tweets and over whether he should have got the job in the first place. So as a result, there was a narrative that formed over whether this would be a complete disaster, whether he'd be a success, what sort of manager he'd make. And that's what and as a result, people sort of followed in the way followed what's happened to the lionesses and their results. And, you know, how he's done in a way they wouldn't have done had they hired, let's say, Bev Priestman. Now, Bev Priestman is his assistant, and she was John Herman's assistant for the Canadian t women's team. Now, Priestman first started, was playing, and one of her coaches at university was John Herdman. Now, she has spent years learning her craft as an assistant, She and... Her role in the Lionesses at the moment is the sort of logistics person. So the person that knows all of the players on the oppo, how they play, the managers, you know, the how, the basically getting A to B, how to run a international team at a major tournament. So the travel sites, the hotels, all of the bits and pieces that you need to actually function as a successful outfit. That's her role. Whereby... And from and this is what I picked up from really following coverage of the Women's World Cup, is that she does the kind of the grunt work and all the bits and pieces, you know, like the paperwork side of things, whereby Neville concentrates on this kind of fairly vague kind of he deals with the philosophy, in other words, the you know, the the training side of things and setting the right tone, the philosophy, and Inputting how he sees the, how the game should be played and what he wants the, the his England women's national team, how he wants them to perform. And this is what the whole underlying point of Prince is, is that if you put Bev Priestman's CV and Phil Neville's CV, there was some similarities. In other words, Bev Priestman hadn't been a you know manager. You know, at international level, neither had Phil Neville. The point is, is that Priestman's CV glows in terms of women's football, in terms of being a player, being a coach, the experience you have with Canada, dealing with the pressure of having being you know hosting a tournament, and the you know obviously a huge amount of interest. In other words, they were getting fifty, sixty thousand fans to their game, to their games at that World Cup, and dealing with that kind of pressure. Neville's CV was much weaker and had far little less success. But the point is is that in FA world is that they were willing to take you know an element of risk in hiring Neville and 
which wouldn't have been there with Bev Friesman. I don't think there are any tweets that Bev Friesman has sent that are sexist, as far as I'm aware. But the, the media side of that argument is is that had they hired her, you know, Bev Priestman has a wife, kids, and she fits a stereotype. She's not someone with a huge, you know, she's not well known to the wider sports fan in a way that Phil Neville was. In other words, had they hired her, the argue it would have been, well, you know, she hasn't managed, she's a risk in that regard. But she has, you know, lots of experience as a assistant coach, and it's a challenge to see how she do, you know, under the pressure cooker of actually being a manager in a high profile role. That's it. That's most. I think most sports. Let's say most male sports fans who follow the the men's game would have just at that point switched off. In other words, you know, I hope she does well, but you know, I it it wouldn't have had. A wow factor to it, which is what Neville has done, and as a result, there's been much more coverage of friendlies and the build up to the tournament than I think would have been happened had they picked Bev Priestman. Now, the difference is, is that Phil Neville is a prince. In other words, princes don't go to places unless they think it is their a next step on to becoming a king. So in other words, he would only have taken that job, which he was, you know, the England job, despite being fundamentally unprepared for it, in the sense that he hadn't even applied for the job and had no experience of women's football in any meaningful sense of the word. But he wasn't willing to learn as an assistant to Priestman. In other words, it's, I am a prince, this is a prince. You know, women's football in this argument would be a principality, I will take the job to be prince. I will not be duke. I will not be lord. I will not be baron. I will not take a backward step in my attempts to become a top-level manager. Which, to my mind, shows that really, on some level, these princes are... Women's football, on some level, is a means to an end. If Phil Neville was, I think, highly, highly, massively committed to you know being a women's coach forever then what you would do is you would learn as assistant to Priestman and let's say if Priestman doesn't do a great job you could then step up but having had years of experience to learn or you would have taken a job in the women's super league and then worked and got a grounding within the game at the grassroots and at your club level and then ascended to the job when you felt you were ready. What Phil Neville was quite happy to do was to jump to the head of the queue and learn on the job. And which is why you do need a Bev Priestman who actually knows the sport, who is actually going to effectively, I wouldn't want to say guide him, but yeah, pretty much someone who he can rely on to say, Okay, well, how do we, you know, what's the best way? Do we travel the day before the game? Do we travel on the day of the game? You know, what sort of training do we do? You know, that kind of principle. In other words, if it was just Phil Neville on his own, let's say, with his own hand-picked male assistant who knew just as much about the women's game as he did, I think he'd have struggled a lot more. But then, obviously, this is the point. 
is that if you look at any media coverage of, of England at the World Cup, is that Priestman was a very much a background figure. Someone who just, you know, who, who I suppose in some of the interviews, it was like, oh yeah, I was, it's like where he, he talked about, they went on a, um, a pre-World Cup camp to, um, I believe it was Qatar. And what happens is they were supposed to do a load of, sort of two-a-day training sessions and eventually they sort of juke it and it actually becomes more about sort of team building. And so in this, in this kind of interview press conference, it was that is then I turned to Bev and said, I think we've got a team here. So in other words, that's the sort of role that she played. It's very much in the background. It's just someone who, you know, she is my number two. She's someone who I use as a, almost a sounding board, but not someone who I am overtly reliant upon which is really what she actually is because she is actually better qualified than he is which leads to the sort of key question of did the women's national team need that Neville boost in other words that sense that people who may have not been that interested who might have only just sort of followed the tournament let's say follow big tournaments i.e. a Euros a World Cup did the women's team need that those eyeballs? Or, you know, to my mind, would it have been more beneficial had they actually hired an experienced coach? Now, we've seen with Samson, you know, they've taken them to uh, World Cup semi-finals. Now, the difference was is that they were a underdog team that, you know, really outperformed their ranking. We've always known that the England women's team had potential. This was, you know, even under Hope Powell, they'd got to European Championship finals. Now, the the argument would be that the Samson England teams were a little bit counter-attacking. They were, you know, they were a well-drilled outfit. They weren't necessarily the most pleasing on the eye in terms of aesthetics, in terms of the football they played. They were moving towards it, but relatively slowly you know it was a gem i suppose you'd argue that they were sort of more you know there was several different tactical systems but they were almost designed on the basis that there was an upper echelon of teams so germany france and the united states and that the england team would need some tactics that would blunt the oppo and that in some ways we'd catch them on the break. We would, you know, be f quite physical defensively. We'd have pace and kind of fairly straight line kind of style of football. And that that was how at the the best way of us being able to beat those teams. In other words, we weren't going to rock up and beat Germany by, you know, playing you know. Stylish football, you know, pass and move. It was going to be far more. You have a solid base and you try and keep a clean sheet, and then you nick one or two on the break. They were moving slightly towards a more aesthetic you know, style of football by the Euros, but it was still that underlying thing, is that when you play against these upper echelon teams, that is how you would play. Now, Neville has changed the outlook of the team, but then he had a much bigger a much bigger player pool to work with. In other words, we've now moved to a winter league. We now have a fully professional top flight. You know, women's football, especially in this country, is fast moving. 
So in other words, whereby in the sort of 90s and early 2000s, you really had Arsenal, and then you had a handful of the more established, sort of barely semi-pro sort of outfits. So I'm talking about Croydon Ladies, Doncaster Bells. You did have a very short period in sort of late 90s, early 2000s, when Mohamed Al-Fayed funded the first fully professional women's team at Fulham, which then eventually was duped within a couple of years. Effectively, the second that Mohamed Al-Fayed realised that it wasn't going to get him a British passport... (laughs) The idea was dropped, and you know every and so Fulham were no longer a serious rival towards Arsenal, and so really what we've now moved towards is almost sort of women's football two point where you then had you know Chelsea, Man City, Liverpool to a lesser extent, and where you were now building to a stage where there are. You know, three or four real top massive teams who are now competing for the Champions League, which is then pushing standards up. You know, you had lots more teams take it seriously. So Manchester United are now spending quite a bit of money. They're now in the Premier League. Tottenham have been promoted as well. Whereby, so Croydon Ladies, Doncaster Bells and Sunderland, who've done a huge amount of work in terms of providing the backbone of the England team through youth development, are now... It's just so far behind that they, those, you know, that I don't think you're ever going to have a situation where you have a fully independent women's team able to get into the you know the top division of the Super League, unless you have a particularly big benefactor who is willing to put fifteen, twenty, thirty million pounds into it. I'd like to see that, but I, I think it's unlikely looking at, obviously, the success of West Ham. It's becoming increasingly stratified. You really do need to have a Premier League team, you know, helping in terms of, you know, offering use of the training ground, the facilities, that kind of thing. That is really what will be the guider to will, yeah, will improve the women's game. And what Neville's also had as an advantage that Samson didn't have is that you've now got English teams going a lot further in the sort of upper ends of the Champions League. So in other words, Chelsea got to the semi-finals and ran Leon very close to over two legs. Whereby, yes, Arsenal did win the Women's Champions League, but that was in a much different era. You now have three, you know, you, you know the Spanish League is now a serious competitive league. Obviously, you've got Atletico, you've got Barcelona. Barcelona got to the final this year. You've now got Real Madrid, who are now entering a team for the first time. Italy is now taking it a lot more seriously. You've got Fiorentina and Juventus. It's The Women's Champions League is really going to be the, the engine of growth for the sport at international level. It's where the best players are, outside of really the, the Americans... And that kind of high-end, you know, you know, weeknight football that is highly super competitive. You know, I think Leon's chances of being as dominant in women's football as they are now in five years' time, I think it's not going to happen. I think at that point you will have Real Madrid, Juventus, Barcelona, Man City, Man United... 
Arsenal. And I think all of those teams are going to have either caught up with Lyon or even surpassed them. So the difference is is that Neville had players such as Lucy Bronze, Izzy Christensen, and now Nikita Paris, who have you know gone to Lyon. You've had Duggan, who has gone to Barcelona, spent a couple of years at Barcelona, and has now moved to Atletico Madrid. So all of those experiences are going to have you know improved them as players and their technique, and so as a result. It was a lot easier for him to work off of the legacy that Samson bequeathed him and he was then able to push it on by saying, you know, we're going to play out from the back. We're going to be very dogmatic in terms of the philosophy. It's basically is Phil Neville's way or the highway. Now, the way how I would argue it is that... Phil Neville is the classic example of a manager in his first job. He's making first job errors. In other words, in some points he's being too dogmatic. In other words, you could see pretty much that uh, England at the World Cup gave away far too many chances. They were quite lucky to have only conceded once in the build-up to the semi-finals. You know, they had, you know, they kind of switched off a little bit in the last sort of 12, 15 minutes against Scotland in the opening game was faintly traumatic. In other words, this was a game that should have been really out of sight and they let Scotland back in. Now, of course, there are mitigating factors in that Scotland probably, if they look back on it now, will argue that they were too timid in the first 60 minutes and put themselves too far behind so that when they eventually did nick a goal back, it was probably a little bit too little too late. Even against Argentina, you know, then they were you know, overtly dominant, but still going into the last 10 minutes, Argentina you know, was still in the game. Uh, you know, there were sloppy errors, and I suppose the point is, is that I can admire and respect what... He, Neville was trying to do in sense of inputting a style that is non-traditional for English teams. In other words, one that was, you know, focused on passing, keeping the ball. But it was probably overly ambitious. And at times it created more problems than it solved. You know, if you take some... And if you take his comments about the third place game, where he said it was essentially pointless. Now... He's right and he's wrong. Yes, it is a slightly pointless game in the sense that if you've lost to semi-finals, you know, that's devastating. And, you know, the difference between third or fourth place is, in my mind, completely moot. In other words, England lost to the USA. The USA won the tournament. You know, they've lost to the best team in the tournament. And if you compare the semi-final against the States with the final that the Dutch played against the United States, it's pretty self-evident that England put the US under a lot more strain and it was a far tighter game than the final was. The final was, you know, let's face it, the Dutch goalkeeper had a absolute worldie of a day and kept the score down. You know, the US on a different day could have easily been three, maybe even four nil up at half time, and that would have been the, the game over. In other words, 
you know, the Dutch just weren't able to really stop the United States playing and they weren't able to get enough people forward to be damaging on the break. You know, the Dutch have some fantastic forwards, they do have some good playmakers, but they were, I think, physically overmatched and as a result, they weren't able, even when they did have breakaways, it was never, you know, four on three. It was always felt it was ones and twos against their sort of back four. So really, the third, fourth place is, is a moot point. It, no one really remembers who finishes third or fourth. However, there's an element of psychology towards it. In the sense that they'd lost to Sweden in the in a friendly just before Christmas, in which was a quite a surprise result, and beating them in a competitive game would have had some you know, positivity. It would have, you know, it would have been a nice ending to it. But problem is by making that statement, which was it was slightly flippant. It was yes, it was the truth, and yes, he was right. But you don't say it out loud because also. You know, you saw the, the issues that it caused in that it forced the players to have to say, yep, we are taking this seriously. And it you know, really engendered uh, an element of anger with the players from the previous World Cup, who in beating Germany to fourth place in Canada was a huge achievement. It's one of the first times that an England team had beaten a German team in a competitive game. So, yeah, that was an important result. So, as a... So it was a misstep, but this is it, it's the classic mistake a first-year manager in his first job would do. And really, for all the boost that Neville has created in terms of increased coverage, increased people interested in the game, who wouldn't necessarily have been interested, I think had you hired a manager with far more experience in the women's game, who had a far greater tactical awareness who would have made those kind of rookie-level errors. I think you could have had a situation where England could have beaten the United States, could have won the whole tournament, at which point that would have created an even bigger boost. In other words, yeah, maybe you could say Phil Neville might have added 500,000 people watching the game who wouldn't have watched it otherwise. But on the flip side of it, I think had you got to the World Cup final with a different manager and won the tournament... I think you'd have added two or three million more people. So in other words, for all the positives, he is still not a particularly good tactical manager. Even Lucy Bronze has said it. In the sense of, well, he's not the greatest. I guess the point is he's learning and he's shown a lot of enthusiasm and I think he really does care about women's football. But enthusiasm and desire to learn isn't isn't quite enough when you actually at the top level in terms of semi-finals you need tactics, you need to be a field general and this is what both Neville and Southgate lack. You know, culture and philosophy is the last refuge of the tactically inept when you're talking about managers. Which is why, basically, you know, Neville has lost the semi-final 
where you have a situation where Southgate lost the World Cup semi-final and lost the semi-final of the Euro Nations. In other words, they are great with philosophy and setting the tone and you know, getting England to play decent football and you know, really dealing with the sins of, of the father. In other words, the whole thing of England being, you know, n unable to deal with tournament pressure, unable to, you know, being, you know, two or three steps behind in terms of, you know, being able to keep the ball. In other words, just the classic England team trying their best, but just being outclassed by continental teams. But at the end product, both of them are of the same generation the same school of thought they're not successful coaches and managers they have failed upwards in other words south southgate was given the middlesbrough manager's job because he you know because he'd been a you know captain at you know middlesbrough done a fantastic job as a captain and as a player and the owner it was the classic one where the owner had you know put up the coin to get Southgate to take a step down. In other words, going from Aston Villa to Middlesbrough was a step down. But he had, you know, taken the club to, you know, as a player, to some of the most successful sort of period in their in their history as a you know, in Europe and as a established Premier League outfit. But as a manager, he took them down. And that's not all of his fault, but you know, at the same time that is a debit. In other words, usually if you get a job when you didn't have the qualifications and you take a club down, you usually don't get given another chance. You know, most managers, you get one shot at it if you fail. I think it's somewhere in the vicinity of about 50% of managers get one job and you never get another opportunity. If you fail, that's it. Management just isn't for you. It is very much a shark tank kind of world. It is dog eat dog. You get one shot at it. Or if you get a second shot, it's usually at a much lower level. Whereby with Southgate, he went into punditry and eventually found his way into, you know, a decent role in the upper end of the FA, for which again he wasn't quite qualified for, and eventually was parachuted into the England under twenty one manager's job, which, you know, by scandal, you know, obviously with Allardyce led him to becoming interim and getting the job. And I think Southgate has done some wonderful things with the England manager's job. But when push comes to shove, when you get him into a semi-final against the Croatians and against the Dutch, all the philosophy in the world isn't going to help when you need tactics. When you need... When you need an elite game plan that is going to nullify the opposition that is going to put you in a position where you win these games. You know, sort of compare and contrast with um, Mark Robinson. Now, Mark Robinson is the current head coach of the England women's cricket team. He was a well-respected winning coach with Sussex. You know, he took them to the county championship and they were unfancied. In other words, Sussex don't play at a test match ground. They don't have the biggest budget in the world. You know, in a way, where your Surreys, your Middlesex, your Yorkshires, your Lancashires, your Warwickshire have that kind of cachet and are able to, you know, put money into the best foreign signings, whereby Sussex 
don't really have that. In other words, what you sell in Sussex is you get to live, you know, in Hove by the seaside and it's, you know, a lovely place to play, but it is not the place where you're going to make the most amount of money and it's not the place where you are going to get high profile. And so he took the job again with only a limited amount of experience with the women's game. But I think the, the difference being that his daughter had played at a fairly high level and he had come into the sport through that while being, you know, in, a, in other words, he wasn't a million miles away from uh, from getting the, you know, the England job for the men's team. So, yes, there were risks to hiring him. But what's happened is, is that he was a well-respected winning coach. And he helped England win the World Cup because at the not that the end the end stage of the tournament he was able to help England you know beat Australia in the group stages very narrowly, which then set them up for a semi final instead of against India or against Australia they played South Africa and again another very tight game saw them over England over the line in the same way you know in the final another again very tight game. He was able to, you know, help the players, and they won. The point is, is that he was a brilliant, well-respected coach prior to getting the job. Yes, there was an element of learning on the job in terms of having to the differences between coaching men and women, but he was still really good at his job, and had won. And as a result, you know, at the business end of a tournament. England were able to win, whereby your Southgates and your Nevilles, who don't have that level track record at you know winning or have been a coach for four or five years, as a result, they don't have that level of experience or that understanding that is able to get the teams that they have over the line. I think as it's important that you as a listener really sort of think to yourselves well did Gareth Southgate and Phil Neville need these boosts you know why do they need so much support you know they're both intelligent you know both both talented individuals but their talent seems to be underpinned with a consistent sense of always needing a boost up. In other words, in the sense that when Phil Neville's career, you know, was winding down, there was a knowledge, there was a thought and a knowledge that he was going to become a coach, which he has done. And the difference is, is that he immediately sort of got parachuted in to, you know, coaching, you know, kind of England under 21 level. Now, the thing is, is that he needed required a special dispensation because he lacked the badges. Again, a similar thing to, to Southgate. But but what then happened is, is that you know, he then took a job as sort of first team coach at Manchester United because David Moyes, who'd been to Manchester Everson, got the job for at Old Trafford, and so he was part of the kind of backroom staff. Which is fair enough. I mean, that is a you know considered way of of earning experience, 
and and it was a classic one where he obviously had the experience of being playing at United under Ferguson. He'd had the experience of Moy, so it was a sort of easy sort of PR thing. Oh yep, Phil's just finished his playing career. He knows me. He knows United, but he you know it was Ryan Giggs I think had a slightly higher role in terms of the pecking order, although Giggs was a player coach. So the thing is, is that that year at with. Moyes goes horribly wrong, Moyes gets sacked, and you know, Phil Neville moves on. So really, at all stages, you know, he's only had a, you know, he'd been given a boost up with being parachuted into the under 21s. He'd been given a boost, you know, by David Moyes. The next stage of his managerial career, which was, or his coaching career even, was he went to Valencia. Now the point is, Phil Neville had never played in Spain didn't speak Spanish, but he got a job as uh, a coach at Valencia. Well, why would that be so? He was fundamentally unqualified. The, the difference is is that the person that owns Valencia is a uh, Malaysian billionaire, Peter Lim. Now, Peter Lim has, a, as well as Valencia, he is a part owner of Salford FC. The other half of the ownership group is the class of 92. So Beckham, Phil Neville, Gary Neville. And as a result, Pete's, as, you know, and he has a business relationship with Gary, is that he gets then just basically parachuted in to Valencia where he learns Spanish on the job. Yeah, he, he, you have to give him credit. He moved his family across. He, he took it very seriously, but he was still fundamentally unqualified eventually he becomes the assistant manager when manager is sacked and eventually Gary gets given the job who had even less knowledge of Spanish even less knowledge of Spanish football and that ends up failing but so in other words you've just got a whole circumstance where you know and you know he's done punditry as opposed to you know earning his chops as a coach he hadn't been in a coaching role for any extended period of time. You know, it was always somebody giving him a boost, whether it be Moyes, whether it be Peter Lim, whether it be the English FA. Much in the same way that Gareth Southgate got the boost through an owner that, you know, loved him. And got the boost from the FA. Having spent several years, instead of learning, coaching, getting to the point where you have the level of experience, he was being ITV's lead football pundit. And it's always that helping hand whereby, you know, I, I have a lot of greater sympathy and anger that a lot of minority coaches who've done all of these hard yards don't get anywhere near the level of support. The FA just doesn't want to know because Gary, in other words, Phil and Gareth Southgate fit the perception that they have institutionally of who they want to promote and who they want to put their... I suppose, who they want to put their political capital behind. And the only people that lose out would be the women's national team themselves because they didn't have an experienced coach when they needed one to get to that next level of not just getting to the semi-final, but winning the semi-final, winning the tournament as a whole. And, you know, female coaches who may have the similar scenario that Phil Neville has in that they need a chance but they don't get given those chances because it's given to someone who is parachuted in 
because it befits their rank. In other words, the idea is, well, actually, Phil, you're a bright, young English coach and you've got this standing in the game from being Phil Neville. Well, let's face it, Phil Neville got 50 England caps because Phil Neville had a brother, <laughs> Gary Neville, and they both played for United, which was basically a you know open invitation for you getting England caps, whereby if he'd spent his whole career at Bolton Wanderers and Everton, I think he'd have got 10 England caps. That's it. There's a, you know, And that's not Phil Neville's fault that, you know, our selection criteria in the 90s and 2000s was slightly more skewed to Manchester United because they were so successful because of the class of 92 to an extent. I, I understand that, but it doesn't make it right in my mind. In the end, the only people that seem to lose out on this is you know, the women players, the women coaches, the women administrators. Administrators. Which really sort of nicely brings us on to sort of the more, you know, the ownership side of the argument. Now, if we were to do a, a Venn diagram of your penniless princes and your establishment, you know, establishment princes. So you would have the penniless prince, you'd have Samson, Herdman, obviously with the, you know, the caveat that we put in that out of all the people who I'm going to talk about in this podcast... You know, he's the one who I'm not going to criticise in that regards. And then on the more establishment side of it, you'd put Phil Neville and Jean-Michel Arles, who is the owner of Lyon, who I'll discuss in a little bit. Now, the intersection of both of those ones, of the established people and of the penniless princes, is Jack Sullivan. Now, Jack Sullivan is effectively the, I guess, the owner of the West Ham women's team. Now, Jack Sullivan is the son of David Sullivan, who is part of the ownership group for West Ham United Football Club. Jack is his son. So, Jack Sullivan first came to, I suppose, prominence in terms of uh, men's football because of his Twitter account. So, he was quite... He, he would often effectively use his Twitter account to say when West Ham were going to sign someone and as a result got a fair amount of sort of coverage because generally he would sort of let the cat out of the bag before it was officially announced and, and there was a, I wouldn't say an element of controversy I, I think there was just some people I think found it annoying really but I mean, I didn't have much of an opinion one way or the other. It's not as if I'm exactly that bothered about who West Ham are signing on any given basis. But so what's happened is is that there, there's really a backstory to this. Is that um, West Ham had a women's team that was effectively independent, uh, had their own sort of trustees, and really just sort of you know in some ways you know were affiliated to West Ham, but it wasn't West Ham run. Put it that way. And a few years ago, they hired Julian Dix to be the manager. Now, Julian Dix is a West Ham legend, played left-back for around you know, 10, 12 years for West Ham in over two spells. And what happened was... And this was really before the sort of reorganisation of women's football, before it became a bit more professional. And it came out that Dix publicly criticised West Ham because they had they weren't providing things kit much support in other words they were you you know the west ham women's team were using the west ham name but they weren't getting 
the square root of anything from the actual football club itself, which at the time was, you know, and it still is, is owned by, you know, the Sullivan and Gold families. And that, you know, Dick said that he had to actually buy the cut the kit himself because they weren't being provided by the club. And it was quite embarrassing and it went on for a while, there was a bit of back and forth. And eventually what happened was that the men's team took the women's team in-house and they just became another part of the actual football club officially. Now, the way how I suppose they spun it was that the... was that the independent you know, trustees weren't doing a particularly brilliant job, that it was ramshackle, and that actually it was best for all concerned if West Ham just took complete control over it. Which was, I suppose, in a way, a easy way of getting away from the previous neglect and just essentially throwing it all on the independent you know, trustees who had been running the club and keeping it going on a string. And personally, in my opinion, I thought it was just shabby. And although, yep, there are benefits to West Ham being run, you know, women's team being run, as part of the West Ham family, all under the same roof, it was a cop out and a way of you know covering up for the you know previous neglect that they had allowed to fester themselves. In other words, it doesn't take much if you don't if you don't particularly focus on you know women's football and a lot of teams at the time didn't giving them kit is just the the absolute bare minimum, isn't it? So now that they were brought in house, what happened is is that Jack Sullivan one day went to his mum and said, "Can I have the money to effectively become the owner of the West Ham women's team?" And she did, and he's then been effectively put in charge of the women's team, which has then led to a documentary that was shown on one of the BBC channels, uh, Britain's Youngest Football Boss. And it followed last season, at which West Ham were in the, as part of the rejig of women's football. So it moved from being a summer to a summer season to a winter season, and you've now got it's been reorganised in terms of division. So in other words, to be in the prem the Premier Division, you have to be professional. You have to have a certain amount of criteria you need to meet. Whereby the second division is effectively you have to be semi-pro, and then you have a kind of a third division which is a bit closer to, you know, there are elements of being semi-pro but not to the same level. So West Ham were, and you, what you can do is, and eventually it is now moving to the point where it's promotion relegation. But when they were first effectively creating this division. If you met the requirements of you know, being professional, tick all the boxes, you would then just be effectively moved into the Premier League, no questions asked. Now, West Ham are, you know, are now professional, they're in the top division, they brought in a fantastic um, manager called Matt Beard, who had been working out in America for several years um, for the Boston team in the um, NWSL. Matt Beard is an English coach, but had spent a lot of years out in America, and he did a fantastic job. They made a lot of new signings, especially internationals, and they got to the cup final unexpectedly, yet they were well beaten by 
Man City, but it was still a fairly triumphant first year. And all of that was shown in the documentary. But this is my point, is that Jack Sullivan wasn't in any way, shape or form, I suppose, really qualified in any meaningful sense of the word to be running a football a women's football team in the sense that as part of this I mean I haven't actually seen the documentary but from what I've read on it is that it shows him doing you know working like the ticket office you know really just learning on learning on the job and so I can imagine it, it would make a fairly interesting documentary but the point is is that it comes down to it's still a cheap means of positive PR so in other words, instead of really, if you were looking at it from a more holistic sense of how had the Sullivan Gold administration dealt with women's football throughout the entirety of their ownership of West Ham, you would focus on the shitty, yeah, let's face it, the, the shitty, shabby behaviour and the neglect, and then obviously you know pushing the blame on the effectively independent chairman, trustees, and then taking it in-house because it was becoming a bit of an embarrassment, and then using it. And let's face it, Jack Sullivan is a is using this as a way of building a building a public profile. So instead of just being the kind of young, impetuous teenager who was, you know, making, you know, arsey comments about who West Ham had signed or saying that West Ham were about to sign someone and kind of being viewed as, you know, effectively the son of a you know, particularly wealthy and privileged man. He is now this champion of, you know, women's football and he's had, having this success and, you know, pushing West Ham towards, you know, the upper ends of, you know, women's football. Taking them to a cup final at Wembley, you know, a huge set piece. But that isn't, and again, you know, what you have with Prince is, is that's not the end point. It's not his dream to be the owner of West Ham women's team. It's to eventually, when his, you know, his dad is in his seventies, he's not going to be running the club on a day to day basis forever. He's putting himself forward as, you know, someone who will then become king. So he will then, you know, be running West Ham wholly, of which the women's team will be a fief within that. And this is my problem. It's nobody in a meritocratic world with his CV would have been put in charge of that team. And, you know, even the, the element of Britain's youngest football boss, it's focused on him, not the women. The women are just, you know, they're there and, you know, they're part of it and it's great. But well, why couldn't it have been a documentary focused on West Ham women's team that only tangentially, you know, mentions Sullivan? The, you know, he's not... And this is the thing that I think, to an extent, frustrates me, is that, yes, he was incredibly young... And let's face it, monumentally unqualified. But he wasn't just the only person that's a young person running a football club in this country. You know, Dave Whelan's grandson was you know put in basically in charge as like chief executive of Wigan at twenty one. 
n- there's just no way that either of these two young men, you know, w- would have had be given that level of responsibility if they were just ordinary people. Even the most genius 21-year-old, genius 19, 20-year-old, you know, gone to university, done all of the sports, you know, management degrees in the world, would have had the situation where had they handed their CV in to Wigan and West Ham, would have been given that level of responsibility. You'd have been castigated. But because it actually is you know, effectively, you know, nepotism, that's what it is. It's, that's the way they're given the job, they're given this level of role, so that eventually, because Dave Whelan, obviously, again, in his 70s, near 80, isn't going to be around forever, and it will just hereditarily go to, you know, the grandson, and to Jack Sullivan, the son. And women's football is a means to an end to that. Now he has a public profile that is largely positive and as a result these men get given huge amounts of credit in the sense that Phil Neville has seemingly got you know, acres of coverage during the World Cup when you'd sit there and say well did he have that great a World Cup you know he caused the controversy with the third fourth place game you know they played the United States now the United States are fantastic in as a team in terms of getting crosses into the box and headed goals. That's something that they've always had. They've always had fantastic wingers. They've always had you know, great strikers who are generally very proficient in the air. So, you know, like Abby Wombach you've, and you know, Alex Morgan. They've always had wingers such as Press, Tobin Heath, Megan Rapinoe. That, and in that World Cup specifically... You know, they had got early goals. So the the knowledge before you enter into that game is that you want to prevent the US getting crosses in. Headed goals. Early goals. What happens? England concede a goal within the first 15 minutes from a cross. They concede a second goal, you know, midway through the first half from a cross and a head. That's a failure of tactics. If you have a situation where America were able to get crosses into the box and able to get headed goals, and, you know, Phil Neville needs to take that level of responsibility. At best, you know, he took a very talented, one of the best four teams in the world to a World Cup semi-final with the fact that his predecessor had taken England to semi-finals at the previous two tournaments. You know, this wasn't an underdog tale in any way, shape or form. Getting to the semi-finals, in a way, was really the bare minimum. And unfortunately, to an extent with, with you know, women's football, is that the bar does seem to be set low, especially for men. So in other words, someone like Jack Sullivan, who hasn't really earned anything other than asking his parents for some money to run a football club that they already effectively owned. You then have Phil Neville, who had no experience and was just, you know, here, have you know this cushy job in which he really, even had he not been the world's greatest coach, you know, he had Bev Priestman to lean on. He had a fantastic squad. He had... All of the bits and pieces and all of the resource that the FA had given him, it was really a job that he couldn't quite fail at, to be completely honest. 
Which really leads us on to the last person I'm, I'm going to talk about with any with any degree of depth. And this is Jean-Michel Arles. Now, Arles is a successful French businessman who took over Lyon and has been running the club for, I believe, somewhere in the vicinity of about 30, 32, 33 years. And he had a huge amount of success in the late 90s, early 2000s, when Lyon won um, nine Le Championnats in a row. Um, I think the furthest they've ever got in the Champions League, they played in a uh, semi-final. Um, it was an all-French quarter-final between them and Bordeaux, and I think they were fairly well beaten in the um, semis. I've had a little bit of success in the Europa League, but as far as I'm aware, they haven't won it. Now he's dev- you know he's built a beautiful new stadium for them. He's you know spent money, but Leon are a second tier team within European men's football. In other words, they you know they can buy players you know from like you know from from Africa. They buy players from lower leagues in Europe and they develop them and sell them on to the big clubs for a huge profit. That's part of their uh, operating model. They're kind of a, a high-end finishing school for young, you know, for young talented players. So you you go from let's say Belgium from a you know mid-table Belgium outfit in the Jupiler League, you go to Lyon, you spend a couple of years, you polish yourself up and then you go to the Premier League or you go to Spain or you go to Italy and it's been especially doubled down in that with Paris Saint-Germain being taken over by the Qataris and they've just you know the money that they put in has really rendered you know Lyon going for the title domestically null and void I mean only that one year where Monaco were had a particularly fantastic set of young players has someone overtaken PSG that Monaco team were you know was ripped apart and sold off within the year and now Monaco are mid to lower league in France in France now Lyon in terms of their women's team are the best team on planet earth uh, they've won the French league year in year out often win the double and they've won I think the last four women's champions leagues in Europe what it is is that Aulus in some ways is a visionary he saw where women's football could go and he put more money into it than anybody else now when he originally started the amount of money that he was putting in wasn't huge and each year it's gotten up and up and up they probably have the highest wage bill of any team in women's football highest uh, operating budget they play most often in the bigger stadium not every single game in the 50 60,000 seat stadium they have but more than virtually anybody else at the current moment they have the best squad they pay the best money and you know they've got you know sort of Lucy Bronze they've just signed Nikita Paris, they have Ada Hegerberg, who's you know the Ballon d'Or winner. And they are the absolute they are pushing the level of women's football up year on year in terms of training, in terms of the facilities, and in terms of how far women's football can go. 
they are streets ahead of anybody else. I mean, Man City and Chelsea are catching up, but they are still behind. In other words, Man City have lost three players to Leon and because Leon pay more money and it is if you go to Leon you're guaranteed trophies. Now the difference is is that Aulus has you know has done some wonderful things for women's football. You know, it is not there are some benefits to Prince Princeton. You know, West Ham in terms of hiring Matt Bibb, which was a you know you had to give credit for. He was, you know, he wanted to move back to England, but you know West Ham still put the money, still gave him the resources in order for them to become successful. Leona spent huge amounts of money in comparison with anybody else. Although if you were to compare it with the men's budget, it is still peanuts, and they've improved standards and pushing the sport along, and by the coverage that Leon have got and that Aulus has had eventually Leon will be overtaken by Chelsea, Arsenal and City the big beasts, you know, Real Madrid They this year is going to be their first year with the women's team you know, Barca are putting money into Atletico are, Juventus have done that is the future where basically the women's game and the men's game will have Effectively, if you do a Venn diagram, it'll be two circles on top of each other. The best men's team will have the best women's team. You know, Manchester United are on their way in that regards. With the amount of money that they put in, in terms of winning the championship last year, and the amount of high-profile signings that they've made this year for the upcoming season. And so, I think the end product is that Lyon will no longer be dominant because the outfits that they are going to be competing against, in terms of Barca, Real... Juventus, they their fan bases across the world, the stadiums, the, the amount of money that they will be able to generate. In other words, in some way, shape or form, I would suspect that the money that Aulus puts into the women's team is probably on some way, shape or form, a loss leader. Or if it is a profit, it would be fairly small. Because even with the success they're having, their average gates are... I think somewhere in a region of sort of single digit thousands. When they use the big stadium, yes, they have got forty, fifty thousand, but that is not a week, you know, week in, week out thing. And as far as I'm aware, I think the ticket prices are fairly low. I mean, ticket prices in France are fairly low anyway. And I think the, and I think that his, Leon's epitaph in terms of their dominance would be that they were just successful enough to bring Real, Barca, Atletico and Juventus into the fray. And that is important. And I, I think he is, you know, the father of modern professional women's domestic football in Europe. But it wasn't entirely... The success of the Lyon women's team you know, and the... I suppose the resource and the effort that Aulus has put in wasn't entirely, you know, selfless. In the end, it, the sort of dominance and success and the publicity as a result that they've had is it's the dominance that they would never have had at men's football, especially on, on a European level. And that 
that has given him all of this huge amounts of credit. Which is fine. I, I think in some way, shape or form he deserves it. In other words, there are people, you know, in, in this podcast that I've done, you know, all of these people, so Herdman, Samson, even Jack Sullivan to a lesser extent, Alice and Neville, have had benefits to women's football. They have helped move women's football along. But I think this should be the end of women's football being a principality, of it being a fief to the kingdom of the men's game. In other words, the money that Aulus puts in to the men's team is big. In other words, if let's say he was to cut the Leon women's team tomorrow, the money that he would save, it wouldn't get you a backup left back. It wouldn't push the men's team any further along in terms of trying to compete with Paris Saint-Germain or competing on a European-wide level. You know, in the end, Jack Sullivan needs the West Ham women's team to help his public profile and to help him eventually, you know, build himself into a position where the West Ham women's team will just be one part of his kingdom, which will be West Ham United as a whole. You know, you have to question exactly how long Phil Neville will stay in women's football. Is there eventually going to be a point where he decides to go to the men's game? Will, will he be offered the men's job or the under-21 job? Will a Premier League outfit decide to give him a job in you know, men's football? And would he take it? Mm. You know, Samson was moving towards going to you know, the men's side of the game eventually as part of his you know, game plan. You know, Herdman has moved on to the Canadian team, which is men's team, which is perfectly understandable. I don't blame Herdman at all. But that's the point. At some point, it is a means to an end. It's positive PR that is done cheaply. It gets you huge amounts of credit, more credit than actually, you know, really they deserve. I mean, the end product of, you know, Neville, Samson, Jack Sullivan... It's underqualified men learning on the job. And these are privileged people. It's son of a multi-millionaire who owns football clubs. It's, you know, it's someone who had been a failure in previous coaching roles, getting a fantastic opportunity for a job he hadn't even applied for. But it's at the expense of women progressing their own sport. <laughs> because I have yet to see DFA any point really give a female candidate the kind of support that Neville and Southgate have received and at some point women's football if it's ever going to to reach the level and the potential that it has it has to be a place where Great women coaches, great women administrators, great women owners. And a place where they can learn on the job, a place where they can expand their skills. So that if they decide one day to go into the men's game, they can do. But if they decide that actually the women's game is the pinnacle for them... That's what women's football needs. I don't mind England going into a World Cup with an inexperienced coach. What I 
I violently disagree with England going into a critical World Cup with an inexperienced men's coach. Um, sorry, a male coach. Because what was the reason? You know, he wasn't good enough as a coach to, to see England over the line in that semi. You know, either, to my mind, you go with an experienced coach who was qualified for the job, whether they be male or female, and try and win the competition because the squad deserved that level of support, or if you are going to fail because, to some extent, you have an inexperienced coach, well, the absolute bare minimum, that coach should be a woman who actually sees this as the pinnacle of her career, not just a step-off onto some bright, sunny upland. Because in the end, with princes, what does a prince always want to be? And it's a king. And where are the kingdoms in women's football? There aren't any. It's always in the, the men's game. Thank you for listening.